I don't know if you can hear me. I'm about as technical as a goldfish, so here we go. My name's Helen. I moved to Tadley on my 25th birthday. I'm way past that now. Um, and, and here I am. I've lived in here, Tadley ever since, apart from three years in Seattle. When I was asked to do a talk on this, I was excited, believe it or not, <laughs> initially. It would give an excuse to dig into the Beatitudes and to find out more about the Sermon on the Mount. One of those things that everyone knows about. But it turned out I didn't know as much as I thought. <laughs> the opening slide is taken from a hillside on the northwest of the Sea of Galilee. No one is totally sure, though there are a lot of opinions, as to where this sermon from Jesus actually took place. And when researching for this morning, I began to realise that there is a lot of ambiguity surrounding the Beatitudes. I rather like what my study Bible said. Opinion differs as to whether the sermon is a summary of what Jesus taught on one occasion, or a compilation of teachings presented on different occasions. The Sermon on the Mount's call to moral and ethical living is so high that some have dismissed it as being completely unrealistic, or to have projected its fulfillment to a future kingdom. There is no doubt, however, that Jesus gave the sermon as a standard for all Christians realizing that its demands cannot be met in our own power. So to begin with, I reflected on the words. As many of you know, words have a special place in my heart. For those of you that don't know, I'm an English teacher by trade. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Are and is, both present tense. Hmm, interesting. But what does blessed look like? And I'm not totally convinced I like the look of poor in spirit. Also, poor in spirit is a tad contentious, as is my ability to use a clicker. Can I have the next slide, please, Derek? It certainly goes against all the self-empowering sayings we see today. I must admit, I prefer these to the cute kittens and puppy posters that used to adorn Bible verses when I first became a Christian about 40 years ago. If we can have, there we go. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven, more promising, but if it is, then that means the kingdom of heaven must be here and now. And I don't necessarily see a huge evidence of that being the case. I definitely needed to dig a little deeper. I'm sorry, Derek, you're just going to have to keep clicking. I'm not going to use that thing anymore. <laughs> Charles Spurgeon. As well as the Bible itself, I visited Charles Spurgeon. I might as well admit now, I might well call him Charles Sturgeon. It's a slip of the tongue, but will just work with me. I also read my way around a few other sermons and expositions from other scholars until I began to realize that the Sermon on the Mount is not definitive. Many have approached it and tried to say, Jesus means this. And I have read my way through at least six contradictory theories. Next slide, please. There we go. You didn't know I looked like that, did you? <laughs> I found that I also drew from Daryl Johnson, who Pete mentioned in his introduction to the Beatitudes. And I've quoted some bits from Brennan Manning, too. What I'm talking about today is what I'm pinning my colors to. You can disagree. Or you can agree, but don't be indifferent. 
This is one of the few times Jesus preached directly without the use of stories to illuminate something. Blessed. Let's start at the beginning. A dictionary definition, oh, I love the dictionary, might include happy or blissful. The first occurrence of the word appearing in the Bible is right at the beginning in the story of creation, Genesis 1:22, And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let fowl multiply in the earth. God saw and was pleased. Blessings flow from God's attitude to something. Now, I rather love the story of Job for very many reasons that you can ask me about later. But one of the reasons is that it shows what the blessings of God might look like. Here is a man who was considered blameless and upright. Maternally, he was rich. Lots of oxen, donkeys, and that kind of thing. And the next slide, please. But the thing I love is that he has 10 children. Now, I have five, and this was a brave man. <laughs> got on with each other. The blessing of God included Job's children feasting together without Job or his wife having to instigate it. This hints strongly to me that blessings are not necessarily material things, but something more. Right there, regardless of oxen and donkeys, I know that this is a man who is living a happy, blissful life. The story goes on. Satan argues with God that the reason Job is good is because of the blessings that he lives within. So God allows each of the trappings of blessings to be removed, stripped back, until we find Job, children dead, wealth gone, scraping his sores with broken pots. This is a man who we can say is in absolute poverty. He refuses to curse God and die. However, at this point, could we say that Job was blessed by God? One of Job's phrases we most sing about comes from Job 2.10. I would sing it, but I wouldn't bless you. <laughs> you give and take away, my heart shall choose to say, blessed be the name of the Lord. Or to quote the Bible, his wife said to him, are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. He replied, you are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. Now, many of you might remember the story of Eric Liddell, so movingly told in the film Chariots of Fire. Eric's sister queries her brother's devotion to running when he knows he is also called to be a missionary in China. His reply, I believe that God made me for a purpose, for China, but he also made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. This is a man who knows the pleasure, the feeling of God's blessing. It is not winning, it's more akin something to approval. I'd like to try and harness that mindset when we think of blessed are within the Beatitudes. Job's life wasn't showing blessing in any of the ways his friends recognized when they tried to argue with him. But at the end, it was Job who had God's approval, God's blessing. 
it was he who God was pleased with. So blessed is something to consider. It's not necessarily how we might think of it. Can I have the next slide, please? On this slide, I've tried to put across what I'm saying. We might receive that blessing from God by having God smile upon us or when he approves of us. To be blessed, we might be the right way up with God, however upside down that might look to the world. Like the first instance within Genesis, a blessing might be when he's pleased with us. To be blessed is not necessarily a state of happiness that is felt. It is not a subjective feeling. Instead, it can be thought of, of how God feels about me and my condition. So often we associate blessing with something that gives us temporary happiness, and that almost puts God in the place of a slot machine. Years ago, I read a book about a man called Philip Eilot. It was called Smile on the Face of God by Adrian Plass. I was inspired by that book and that title. <laughs> I wanted, indeed I still want, to put a smile on the face of God. That, to me, would be a blessing. Blessed are the poor in spirit. I'm going to turn again to Spurgeon at this point and ask Derek for the next slide. <laughs> he refers to the Beatitudes almost as the rungs of a ladder. To quote him, the first rung, the rung of salvation, is when we realize how completely morally bankrupt we are, how very tiny, infinitesimally tiny, we are in comparison to God. And then there is the problem of our rebellion our sin, our awfulness, which so completely separates us from a powerful, holy, just God. And then there is love. Love I cannot honestly begin to comprehend. I really like that imagery, but I think I prefer thinking of the first of the Beatitudes as a starting point of something else. Thank you, Hugh, you gave a nod for this. <laughs> Can I have the next slide? <laughs> remembering the well-known story of the two houses, one built on sand, one built on the rock. Could the beginning of our salvation, the day when we got transferred from the kingdom of ourself into the kingdom of God, be when we realized just how infinitesimally small we are and how amazingly huge is our God? Could this beatitude be the foundation shifting from the poverty sands of self onto the eternal foundation of Christ? Blessed are the poor in spirit who know they have nothing. I'll return to Job. I usually do. <laughs> I told my son I was preaching today and he went, Job and Amos. I went, just Job. <laughs> Several suffering, chapters of suffering later, including a less than helpful conversation with his friends, Job never did curse God, but he movingly gives voice to his pain and utter desolation. He calls repeatedly on God to ask him, why? How many of us do that? Finally, God begins to answer him, Job 38. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, who is this who obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. 
Where were you when I laid the Earth's foundation? Tell me, if you understand, who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and I wrapped it in thick darkness? When I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place? When I said, this far you may come and no further. Here is where your proud waves hit. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place that it might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out of it? I really wanted to continue, but you get the gist. God carries on for four whole chapters. Job, can you imagine, tries to form some kind of reply. These are the first six verses from Job 42. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I do not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. We need to move away from the self-empowerment that is so prevalent in our culture. Have you ever wondered why the need to big up ourselves? We can have the next slide about two minutes ago, sorry. <laughs> is it possible to remove our need of a savior? For when we glimpse how impoverished we really are, then can our hearts begin to overflow with gratitude. I'm not sure how many of you have heard of Brennan Manning. Another slip of the tongue, the amount of times I said Bernard Manning, which has got a completely different connotation to him. But I encourage you to read some of his works. I particularly like the Ragamuffin Gospel, and this extract is taken from it. Can I have the next slide, please? Sir James Jeans, the famous British astronomer, once said, the universe appears to have been designed by a pure mathematician. Joseph Campbell, wrote of a perception of cosmic order, mathematically definable. As they contemplate the order of the Earth, the solar system, and the stellar universe, scientists and scholars have concluded that the master planner left nothing to chance. The slant of the Earth, for example, tilted at an angle of 20 degrees, produces our seasons. Scientists tell us that if the Earth had not been tilted exactly as it is, Vapors from the oceans would move both north and south, piling up continents of ice. If the moon were only 50,000 miles from Earth instead of 200,000, the tides might be so enormous that all continents would be submerged in water. Even the mountains would be eroded. If the crust of the Earth had only been 10 feet thicker, there would be no oxygen, and without it, all animal life would die. Had the ocean been only a few foot deeper, carbon dioxide and oxygen would have been absorbed and no vegetable life would exist. The Earth's weight has been estimated 
at six sextillion, that's six with 21 zeros, yet it is perfectly tons, <laughs> yet it is perfectly balanced and turns easily on its axes. It revolves daily at the rate of more than 1,000 miles per hour, or 25,000 miles each day. This adds up to 9 million miles a year. Considering the tremendous weight of six sextillion tons rolling at this fantastic speed across an invisible axis held in place by unseen bands of gravitation, the words of Job 26.7 take on unparalleled significance. He poised the earth on nothingness. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And back to Spurgeon, I told you I'd do it. <laughs> that first step of ours, which we take through grace, is to acknowledge alongside Job, I had no idea. Lord, you are all, and I throw myself on your mercy. Lord, I am totally nothing, and I give to you all that I am. Let us reflect for a moment on that hymn by Isaac Watts, written 315 years ago in 1707. And after we've sung it, I'm going to continue. So Derek, next slide, please. Thank you. I'm going to turn this off. are the poor in spirit. God, next slide please. <laughs> Sorry Derek. God delights when we are grateful, when we take a moment to consider the depth of gratitude or try to fathom an impossible task, how very much he, in his love, in his mercy, took our poverty shame upon himself through Jesus and invited us into his kingdom of heaven. I want to again bring you something from Brennan Manning. I love drawing from people who are so eloquent, yet if you read the foreword to his books, any of them, you will see a man utterly broken and dependent on God. Next slide, please. Manning suggested that the poor in spirit are like the survivors of a shipwreck. Out at sea, all the things they used to rely on, past achievements, accumulated treasures, titles and degrees, simply do not matter. All that matters now is the plank to which they cling. Manning writes, the shipwrecked have stood at the still point of a turning world and discovered that the human heart is made for Jesus Christ and cannot really be content with less. They cannot take seriously the demands that the world makes on them. We are made for Christ and nothing else will ever satisfy us. The shipwrecked have little in common with the landlocked. The landlocked have their own security system, a home base, credentials and credit cards, storehouses and barns, their self-interest and investments intact. They never find themselves because they never really feel themselves lost. The shipwrecked, on the contrary, 
reach out for the passing plank with the desperation of the drowning. Adrift on an angry sea in a state of utter helplessness and vulnerability. The shipwrecked never asked what they could do to merit the plank and inherit the kingdom of dry land. They knew that there was absolutely nothing any of them could do. Are we a people who are poor in spirit? Or do we live as if Christianity is a bolt-on, like the life jacket we keep under our seat on an aircraft, there to put on in case of emergency? Let's sing another hymn. Hopefully people know it. It's a lot of words. from dust but God but theirs is the kingdom of heaven we aren't left in abject poverty no for we are part of an upside down kingdom ah yes kingdom of heaven <laughs> that present tense part which means here and now blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven I'm going to jump quickly into the Old Testament here to try and make my point clear, and it's not from Job. <laughs> Thank you. When the Israelites were enslaved by the Egyptians, God calls a man to be his representative. And I want to read you an account taken from Genesis of him being called by God. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, hmm, I will go and see this strange sight. Why the bush does not burn up? When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush. Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals. The place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Now Moses was minding his own business when his every day got transformed. And this is where I want us to be challenged. I would suggest that Moses, at that point, was in the kingdom of heaven. Now, he was surrounded by his familiar, but he was having a conversation with the divine. Moses is part of the Old Testament narrative, and the kingdom of heaven was a terrifying prospect. Contact with a perfect God in our imperfect state did not usually go well. But now we're part of the New Testament narrative. And Jesus says, the kingdom of God is at hand. 
At the point of our coming to faith, recognizing our poverty of spirit and submitting our ways to the Lordship of Jesus, we are transferred to another kingdom. From that point on, when we walk on this earth, we walk as ambassadors. Moses was captivated by something of God, in this case, a bush on fire that did not burn out. I would encourage us to be looking for moments that God has prepared in advance for us. Times when the kingdom of heaven collides with that of this world. Remember, our citizenship is in heaven. and We live our lives in this place. God might not send a burning bush. In fact, apart from this occasion, I've never heard of him doing so. But look out for holy moments. The metaphorical, take your shoes off. This is holy ground. Next picture, please. I told you I lived in Seattle. <laughs> Once our car got a puncture on the top of a mountain range called Hurricane Ridge. <laughs> that was the 360 view, by the way. You turned around and there are mountains all around you. Absolutely stunning. It was near Seattle where we lived. My mum and dad were visiting as our fourth child, Kezia, had just been born and she was about a month old at this point. The spare wheel was frozen under our van and it was beginning to get dark, and the conditions were closing in. My dad, my sweet dad, wheelchair-bound, gazed across the beauty of the mountains and said, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And I knew I was on holy ground. At that moment, I was in the center of God's blessing. To quote the Lion Handbook to the Bible, Told you I'd done some research. <laughs> In Jesus' hands, the kingdom of God becomes a dynamic idea, rule rather than realm. It describes God's active reign in the world. The qualification for entering it is not the right kind of birth certificate, but a radically changed lifestyle, characterized by repentance and faith. Jesus taught the multitudes on a hillside near the Sea of Galilee. The multitude were an oppressed people, living in occupation under Roman rule. This was a people, or in spirit. They could identify with what Jesus was saying, but because of himself, Jesus could tell them that the kingdom was at hand, that theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He didn't give them instructions on self-empowerment or nicey-nicey verses to brighten everyone up. He gave them himself. When we are out with our neighbors, work colleagues, friends, families, are we living in our own strength? How real are we? For in the world today, authenticity is a rare commodity. We are surrounded by a generation expected to face economic woe, food poverty, Poverty, let alone the heightened risk of nuclear war on our doorstep. Are our feet on secure, strong foundations? Or are we clinging to salaries, savings? Next slide, please. Corrie Ten Boom, who alongside her father and sister, were incarcerated within a concentration camp during the Second World War for hiding Jews, famously said, you may never know Jesus is all you need, 
until Jesus is all you have. Do we really know that? Do we really believe it? A time might be coming when this is our reality. So, final slide. <laughs> Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let us revisit our foundations. Let us meditate on who our God is and how, in his great mercy and love, he chose to save and adopt us as his children. Let us spend time reflecting on what being in the kingdom of heaven looks like in our everyday and begin to look for those take off your shoes moments. And this week, may each and every one of us try to bring a smile to the face of our God. Thank you. Thank you.